0: I'm going to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. So let's go to Leviticus 1 again. And we'll read from verse 10. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter. And then we'll have a word of prayer. So Leviticus chapter 1. And we'll commence reading at verse 10. So let's hear the word of our God. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a meal without blemish. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle his blood round about the altar. And he shall cut it in his pieces with his head and his fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water. And the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar." And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers, and cast it beside the altar on the east part, by the place of the ashes, and he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder, and the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire, it is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. Let's bow for prayer and let's ask the Lord to draw near to us and bless us even in the Bible study this morning. Let's pray. Eternal God and gracious and loving Father, it is a great privilege and an honor for us to draw nigh unto thee. We thank thee Lord that we approach through Christ. And we thank thee Father that thou hast bidden us to come. We thank thee Lord for this day, one day set aside in seven where we can, O God, assemble ourselves together in the house of God. We thank thee for a place, O God, that thou hast given to this people. Uh, Lord, we thank thee, O Father, that we come to meet in this meeting house, and primarily we come to meet with thee, our God. We've come to hear what our God would have to say. We have come, O God, to render unto thee worship and honor that is due to thee. We pray, O God, that we will have brought with us even the sacrifices of praise and the sacrifice of a life devoted to Thee. We pray, O God, that Thou would help us to, O God, approach Thee and to worship Thee and serve Thee as we ought. And we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy Son. We thank Thee for His life and His death. We thank Thee all that He accomplished for us. And we thank Thee for the application of that by the Spirit. And we come to Thee, O God, O God, We pray that thou would send forth the Holy Ghost. Help me, I pray. Wash me in the Redeemer's blood. Take this vessel, this weak vessel, O God, and use me for the glory and honor of thy name. Bless thy people. May they be edified. May they be instructed in the things of God. May their hearts rejoice in what Christ has done for them. God, we pray that this will establish them and build them in their holy faith. We pray not only for here, but we pray for the junior, the senior Bible classes. We pray for our children across the way in the church hall. And we pray, O God, that the Spirit of God will come upon them. O God, that Thou would speak to their hearts. Lord, art the one who knows the hearts of all men. Do you know those who belong to Thee? Bless those little ones of the flock. And we pray that Thou would put Thy hand upon them, even this day, and bless them. Remember those who are not yet saved. Christ himself said, All her sheep that I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring with me. And we pray that as the good and the great shepherd, that you will gather these little lambs in your arms, and Lord, that thou would bring them into the fold and the family of our great God. So Lord, we look to thee. We lift our eyes heavenward, bless and crown this day in thy house with thy presence. For it is thy presence that makes a difference. It sweetens O God, the atmosphere, it provides a feast for our souls, and we pray, O God, that we will be conscious of our God drawing near, as we draw nigh unto Thee. So do us good, Lord, and help. We pray all this in Christ's name, and for His and Thine everlasting praise and glory. Amen. This morning we continue on our series, The Shadows of the Saviour, and we return once again to consider the first of the five Levitical offerings, the burnt offering. The last time we looked at this offering under two headings, we thought about the particulars of the burnt offering, how it does not originate in Leviticus, but finds its origin there really in the early chapters of Genesis. It was the most common of all the offerings. It was offered at various times and often along with other sacrifices. It different from the other offerings in that it was wholly offered unto the Lord. There was no part of it which could be eaten, that was taken by the offerer or the officiant. Uh, Only the outer covering, the skin and the feathers, was not burnt upon the altar. We also noted that the particular uh, animals that could be offered, and why there were different types of animals, those from the herd, those from the flock, or certain fowls, we also noted that there were certain things that they had in common. So that was really the particulars, of the burnt offering. We secondly considered the procedure of the burnt offering from verses 3 to 9. And we looked at the details of the process and the persons involved and we took special note of the blood. There was always something done with the blood. I concluded really with the reminder of the freedom that you and I have to approach God in worship. But I also warned of the danger the danger of being so familiar with these things like Israel of old that it just becomes a matter of rote and ritual and the wonder of it all becomes blurred. Now, we're going to move on this morning and we're going to look at another three points and that, that will, Lord willing, finish the burnt offering. We're going to look at another three points this morning in relation to it. Firstly, I want us to think about the principles of the burnt offering. We thought about the particulars, the procedure, and now the principles of the burnt offering. There are certain principal truths which the burnt offering sets before us, and I want to bring a number of them to you. Five, I believe, in total. Number one, we have the principle of man's depravity. There is the principle of man's depravity. The burnt offering, it was not an offering for a specific sin. It was associated, yes, with all our offerings, and it was offered at various occasions mourning and repentance to celebrate and to and occasions of joy, but it was not for a particular sin. When Noah built the altar and offered to clean animals as a burnt offering, in Genesis 8, we read of the Lord saying in his heart, in verse 21 of Genesis 8, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither Will I again smite any more everything, living thing, as I have done? And there we have reference to the depravity of man as this burnt offering is offered by Noah. That reference there is the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The heart is corrupt, and the thoughts and the imagination which proceed from it, they are evil right from man's very birth. Man is totally He is totally depraved. Now, total depravity, it doesn't mean that all human beings are as wicked as they possibly can be. Rather, it means that the fall of man into sin was so serious that it affects the whole person. That's what it means when we speak of total depravity. The fallenness that grips and captures the human nature, it affects every part of man. It affects our bodies. That's why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible tells us that the mind has become darkened. And that is what particularly is referred to by God in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, the imaginations of the heart. So the body is affected, the mind is affected, and the will of man is also affected. No longer is it in its pristine state of moral power, but now it's in bondage to sin. Man speaks about free will. Well, the only free will that sinful man has is that he is free to choose that which his heart is inclined to, which is sin, and therefore the will is in bondage. Sinners are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of their hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, indeed the whole person, has been infected by the power of sin. And that's what we mean when we speak about total depravity. It doesn't mean that everyone is absolutely and totally as wicked as they can be. doesn't mean that. But it means that every part of man has become infected and affected by sin. There is nothing in sinful man, no part of his being whatsoever, which is pleasing to God. Every part has been polluted and corrupted by sin. And this is why a whole a whole substitutionary offering is brought unto the Lord. When an Israelite wanted to approach God, to worship Him, to be accepted by Him, he had to come with a burnt offering which was an acknowledgement not necessarily of a particular sin, but it was an acknowledgement of his sinfulness, his absolute total depravity. There was nothing by which he could offer God, not his thoughts, not his desires, Not as actions, not as words. All was polluted, all was corrupted by sin. Now, as we come to God through Christ, who the burnt offering foreshadows, it's really our acknowledgement of our own total depravity. There is nothing pleasing within us that we can ever offer God. So that's the first principle in this burnt offering. Number two, the burnt offering also sets before us the principle of particularity. Now, if the Israelite learned anything from the meticulous rules and and regulations and requirements that the Lord laid down for the burnt offering and all the rest of the offerings, it was that he, that is God, was very particular about the way that man approached him. The Israelites, they couldn't bring any sort of offering. And what I mean by that, not even Halt and Liam and maimed and all the rest of it. I mean, he couldn't bring any sort of offering. He couldn't bring grain. He couldn't bring money. He couldn't bring flowers. He couldn't bring rich materials. He couldn't bring that. He had to bring, he had to bring a blood sacrifice. And the animals had to be of a particular kind. God had ordained the way. And there was no other way to draw nigh to God in worship. And I've already mentioned that briefly in the last study. And yet the rebellious fallen nature of man it inclines him to want to approach God in his own way. And we have an example of that, of course, there at the very beginning. In Cain's approach unto God. But we clearly see from that account that man is not allowed to approach God in any way that he desires, nor will he be acceptable. Or is that an accepted way? In the immediate context here, In this context of Leviticus, the Israelite could only approach God by the means of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the blood sacrifices. There was no other way by which he could enter into the court of the tabernacle. It was only by that way, by the blood sacrifice, that the priest could ever enter into the holy place on behalf of that one who made the offering. It was only by the blood that the high priest could enter in once a year into the most holy place to represent the nation. It was by the blood. Christ Himself spoke about this particularity, this exclusivity in His own day. He Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sinners can only come to God God's way, and that's the person And through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by Christ that we have access. We have access to this grace wherein we stand, that we have access unto the Father. This is the message we sound forth that there is one way, exclusivity of God's way of salvation, Christ and Christ alone by the blood. And you know, this is something that sinful man hates. He says it's too restrictive, it's too narrow. It robs man of any glory that he might uh, want to have in his own salvation, but there is no other way that is acceptable with God. The burnt offering establishes the principle of this particularity, this exclusivity. And this leads us on to the next principle. Principle number three, the principle of acceptance with God. Closely related to the accepted way, is the principle of the offerer being acceptable before God. There's a great deal of emphasis today on self-acceptance, self-esteem, most of which is wrongly orientated. Contemporary self-esteem, it looks inward for acceptance. You've got to accept who you are. Just be who you are. It's It's not what's pushed today. You need to just accept and embrace all those really sinful lusts and desires and inclinations. Isn't that what's pushed today? Man seeks this, as it were, self-acceptance. People want to feel good about themselves by looking for the good which is in them. While God's Word tells us that we are not good in an offer sale. People, they want to, yes, want to be, a, talk about this self acceptance, self esteem, which I said is wrongly orientated. But people also want to be accepted by society. And, you know, they want to be accepted to such an extent that they're willing to forgo. They're will, willing to forgo voicing how they really feel and voicing what is contrary to popular opinion for the fear that they might ex- experience cancel culture. And people want to be accepted by society. And so while they know something's wrong, it just doesn't sit right. It goes against nature. It goes against their own very conscience. And yet they want to be accepted. They want to have this inclusive feeling that they'll not be pushed to the side. And they don't want to experience this cancel culture. Well, then they just they keep their opinions to themselves. But it's acceptance with God, not acceptance with self, not acceptance with society, but acceptance with the sovereign, with God, that is most important. It's of the primary importance. It's His acceptance which is vital to our eternal destiny and spiritual good. Now, the offerer's acceptance in the tabernacle court was based solely, solely on the acceptability of the offering. On the offering. That's why the offerer was accepted. That's why he was allowed to come into the court, because of the acceptability of the offering. And that's why that offering had to be without blemish and without spot. Of himself, that man, he could not be accepted because of his own sin. But an offering could be accepted on his behalf, as long as it met the standard that God set forth. God's acceptance of us, God's acceptance of any man is occasioned by something outside of ourselves because you and I, we do not measure up to the law of God. Our acceptance, and you know this, good to be reminded, it's founded on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he reminds them that God hath made us accepted in the beloved, it's because He is accepted; we are accepted. Savilia Martin, she wrote these words in the hymn: "In the beloved, accepted am I, risen, ascended, and seated on high. Saved from all sin through His infinite grace, with the redeemed ones afforded a place. In the beloved, how safe my retreat! In the beloved, accounted complete. Who can condemn me?" In Him I am free, Savior and Keeper, forever is He. The principle, the principle of acceptance with God. Principle number four. And again, this is closely connected to the previous point. We have the principle of identification. You see, these points, they all flow out the one from the other, especially when that first point is established, man's total depravity. They all flow out from it. There's an acceptable way. There's an acceptance with God. And then this, number four, this principle, it's a principle of identification. Do you know, man's depravity, as I said, it's really the first principle that sets forth. It's, it's fundamental to Reformed theology. And it stands at the head of the list of that acrostic tulip, the T which stands for total depravity. See, the one who was to benefit from the death of the sacrificial victim had to identify with that animal. It was, first of all, to be his animal. Either he he raised it up or he obtained it at a price. Then the offerer had to place his hands upon the victim, symbolically identifying himself with the animal which was killed in his place. But you know, here we have the biblical truth of federal headship presented. That's what it is, federal headship. It has to do with one person acting on behalf of another and in and which a people are identified with and in union with that federal head. That's what it means. You know, That concept of federal headship, it's seen in the natural sense. We could say in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. And there we read the account of Abraham, and he's paying tithes unto that man, Melchizedek, the high priest of God. And it's said there that Levi, the tribe of Levi, was in the loins of Abraham. And in effect, therefore, Levi was paying tithes unto Melchizedek in Abraham, the father. In a natural sense, he is the representative head of the home. Do you know that's alluded to here in Leviticus chapter 1 because I mentioned the last time it's the man who brought this offering, and therefore the family whom he represented brought it in him. But in a spiritual sense, that we could say is a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense, federal headship is seen in Romans chapter 5 and really the second half of that chapter And Paul there teaches that the entire human race is represented is identified in two Adams. The first Adam was the federal head of all mankind under the covenant of works. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the federal head of all believers under the covenant of grace. We can say there because of that, because of that, the sin that Adam committed was legally and effectively our sin. So conversely, you can say the obedience of Christ is legally and effectively our righteousness. Those who are in Christ Jesus. To provide salvation, the needed atonement had to be made by another who was not a federal connection with Adam. It needed to be, and therefore needed to be free from the imputation of Adam's guilt. And those requirements were met in the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We lay our hand by faith upon Christ. And as we do that, we demonstrate our identification with Him and view Him as the one who represents us before God, by union to our federal head. All that we did is reckoned to Him. All our sin He takes. And He bears it in His own body to the tree. But conversely, all that He did is reckoned to have been done by us. This principle of identification or representation is so clearly set forth in the burnt offering. Number five, another principle taught by the burnt offering is the principle of entire consecration. The animal was wholly given up to God. Nothing was held back by the offerer. This was an offering that signified complete devotion. Complete devotion. The offerer got nothing. This is the kind of sacrifice that God calls for, for from those who are His. It's not that we're to bring to God a blood sacrifice. The form of the law has changed, but the one of complete devotion, the, the, the essence of the law, it remains the same. We have those words of Paul to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 12 and the verse 1, well-known words. What does he say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We're to give ourselves entirely as living sacrifices unto our God, holy, totally, and without reserve. That's what he desires. That's what happened here in the burnt offering. Caleb was one who wholly followed the Lord. The widow, she was one who gave her all, she gave her two last mites, and she might be criticized in these days for not being prudent and preparing for the future. The woman who poured out her expensive perfume anointing the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, she was accused of wastefulness, but all those acts were acts of complete devotion. They weren't half-hearted. These people were wholehearted in their worship of the Lord. And that's what God desires of you and me. That you and I would be wholehearted, that, it, that our heart would be in it, not just half our heart, but all our heart, all's to be given to the Lord, that all would be in the altar, and nothing held back from Him. No sphere, no section of our life, our relationships, our career, whatever it might be, our finances, all given over unto God. You see, if you're just going to go through the form of worship and your heart's not in it, well, you might as well skip the form. And that was made clear by David in Psalm 51. See, there he's confessing his sin. And at such a time, David, he ought to bring an offering. He ought to. Under the old economy, and yet he says this here, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it, Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Was the burnt offering not required at that time with all our offerings? Of course it was. They were required of David by God. But David goes on to say this, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, I will not despise. Those offerings, the burnt offering, the all our sacrifices, they needed to be brought with the right heart, a full heart. A whole heart. Or else there's no point bringing them at all. It's heart and head religion that God requires. It's not sincerity and our emotions alone. Although that is required. Of course our emotions should be affected when we hear of Christ and what He's done. And we hear of sin in the land. How can you divorce your emotions from that? But it's not sincerity and it's not emotions alone. You could say that's heart. And it's not doctrine and orthodoxy alone, although that is vitally important. It's heart and it's head religion that God wants. He wants us to worship Him in spirit with our heart, and He wants us to worship Him in truth with our minds and according to the doctrines of the faith. That's the worship that's acceptable to Him. These are just a number of the principles that the burnt offering sets before us. Well, secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the purpose of the burnt offering. That's the principles and what they set before the Israelites and also us, but also the purpose of the burnt offering. Now, you and I, we don't have to do much digging in the mind of Scripture to uncover the purpose for which the burnt offering was was made. Look at verse 4, Leviticus chapter 1. It says there, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The main function of the sacrifice is to render atonement. That's the main picture that God would have Israel understand. If you're to come into fellowship with the Lord and worship him, it can only, only be on the basis of atonement. Remember the burnt offering? It was not so much to gain forgiveness for a particular sin, but it is to make atonement for the sinner's, or for the offerer's, sinfulness. And the burnt offering provides a divine solution for man's fallen condition. It provided atonement. Now the subject of atonement is vast, and there are many aspects we can consider concerning it, and really those considerations of the atonement, they fall into to three main headings. Number one, there is the necessity of the atonement. The necessity. It was necessary because of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Number two, the nature of the atonement. It was a vicarious, objective, suffering, penal, definite atonement. There's the nature of the atonement. And then the last main heading is the extent of the atonement. What was God's intention? To whom are the benefits of the atonement applied? Now, each of those main headings and each of those sub-points would be a Bible-class message in themselves. And I'm not going to go into them, but boiling it down to the basics. The very basics, what does atonement mean? Well, to give you a definition from Alan Kearns' Dictionary of Theological Terms, it is atonement, it is the satisfaction of divine justice by the Lord Jesus Christ in His life and death that procures for His people a perfect salvation. The satisfaction of divine justice and the procuring of a perfect salvation by the work of Jesus Christ. Now we get a further understanding of what atonement means by the terms that are employed in Scripture concerning it and relating to it. The Hebrew word that is translated in verse 4 to make atonement, it literally means to cover over so as not to be seen. The suffering of the substitute has the effect of covering over the guilt of the offender to make it invisible to the eyes of God. That's a marvelous thing when we think that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. But that is the effect of the suffering substitute and sacrifice. It covers over the guilt of the offender so that it's not seen in the eyes of God. With this covering, sin is therefore forgiven. It's sent away, it's let go so as not to be on that person's account. And the conscience of the transgressor is then at rest. Now, why is that? Why is the conscience of the transgressor at rest? Well, remember primarily that this burnt offering is Godward. It's Godward. He is the one who's at rest. His anger is pacified. I mentioned the last time that the burnt offering, and we read it twice this morning, it is, it was a, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Those words we noticed they could be translated a savor of rest. The atoning sacrifice so sufficiently deals with sin that God's wrath is appeased. And the Israelite in bringing that offering and seeing the blood of the animal shed would understand that that's a picture of atonement, a picture of covering for sin. Many of you know that there's that other picture of the covering. The atonement that God made is in the ark, where that word pitch, He was to pitch it within and without. That word pitch is the same word that is translated atonement. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scripture, well, they employed, it employed, sorry, certain words in translating these Hebrew terms associated with atonement. And then the New Testament used them words itself. And through those terms, we can have a deeper understanding of the atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement, it's translated by a Greek word which means to propitiate or to appease. The Hebrew verb, to forgive, it's translated by a Greek word which means to to release or to let go. And through those terms, we understand that the atonement, the suffering of the substitute. Divine wrath is appeased, and as a consequence, the punishment due to sin is not inflicted upon the transgressor. They're released from the penalty which their guilt deserved. And as essentially the forgiveness of sins. In scripture, in scripture, the forgiveness of sins is always connected with the atonement. Hebrews 9.22 clearly teaches that truth. Without shedding of blood, the atonement is no remission. Also in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for mercy seat, it is akin to the word atonement. And the mercy seat, it means that word, it means a place of covering. In the Greek, that's translated propitiation. In the New Testament, and here again, we have an emphasis of a covering producing appeasement. The atonement made by Christ, it has that effect. It covers over the guilt of our sin. It pacifies, it satisfies a holy and a vengeful God. And it releases us from the penalty of our sin by the payment of His price. You see, the offerer in this account here, the offerer was free to walk out of the temple court or the tabernacle court, and back to his family, while the animal took his place and suffered the stroke of death. You notice there, in verse number 11, it tells us there, and it just struck me as I read it, And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and the priests, our son, shall sprinkle his blood, his blood, blood of the sheep, not the offerer. He could walk out again free. He has drawn nigh to God. He could go back and live his life. And yet the stroke of death, the blood was upon the, the substitute. So it is all who believe in Christ, we are free from the punishment of sin. The Puritan John Fossett, he said this, concerning the atonement, the complete Atonement which Jesus Christ has made for our sins by the sacrifice of Himself is the life and center of the evangelical system and that which endears it so much to the hearts of those who believe. Here we see pardon procured, the sinner saved while sin is condemned and punished. Here we see the most solemn display of justice and holiness in conjunction with the freest exercise of mercy. Here we see sinful rebels delivered from deserved punishment and advanced to a state of dignity and honor. And at the same time, the rights of that divine government against which they have rebelled, preserved and maintained. The purpose of the burnt offering was to make atonement. Finally this morning, I want us to think and consider the picture of the burnt offering. So we have thought about the principles of the burnt offering. We thought about the purpose of the burnt offering and finally the picture of the burnt offering. Having made reference to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout, it's not hard. It's not hard to see that the, in the burnt offering we have a picture of the person and the work of Christ. It is the Savior who is foreshadowed in this offering in so many ways. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the antitype of the type of the burnt offering. John the Baptist indicated this very Early in the outset of the Lord's ministry, when he cried, he lifted up his voice and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Christ came to make atonement by the sharing of his precious blood. I mentioned in my introduction to the book of Leviticus that the blood of bulls and goats, they could never take away sin. Never. They could never completely, they could never finally cover sin. The day of atonement that came round every year in the old Jewish economy, God, God never accepted the blood of bulls and goats as the final payment for sin, but He still required that blood be shed. It was an atonement. This burnt offering, it was an atonement to cover sins until Christ came. It was, as I said then, as if God saved on credit in the Old Testament. Now, He always saved by Christ, and He always saved by faith in Christ, and He always saved by means and through the shedding of the blood, looking forward to what Christ would do. But as if He saved on credit, until Christ came and offered that one great sacrifice for sins forever. Christ is pictured in so many ways, In this offering and in the procedure concerning it, and I'm really going to mention just some without going into great detail as we draw to a close. How do we see Christ pictured in this whole chapter one here, this burnt offering and the procedure concerning it? When we think of the one who brought the offering, we notice that it was a personal, willing, voluntary offering that cost cost the offerer something. When we think about Christ, we know, we know that He came willingly. There was no reluctance on His part to come. The Son of God voluntarily stepped forward in the great councils of eternity to be the Redeemer of man, And He did so, He did so at great cost to Himself. And we have been thinking about that in the book of Philippians chapter 2, the descent of the Word. Christ did so at great cost to Himself. Never forget that. This is something that cost the offer. It was a personal, willing, voluntary offering at great cost to Himself. It cost the Son of God to come and redeem our souls, and yet He did it voluntarily. He did it willingly. Then there is the nature of the offering in that it was God work if I was to ask you why the Son of God came into this world, I suspect that the majority answer would be to save the lost. To save the lost. But that's the consequence of what He came to do. It's a consequence. He came primarily, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Though I come to do thy will, O God. He came to do the will of the Father, to glorify Him, to satisfy His justice, to turn His way His wrath, the result of which is the salvation of the lost. He came to do the will of the Father. It was Godward, the work that He came to do. Then we notice the purity and the sinlessness of Christ and the sacrifice that's offered. It was to be, we read, without blemish. In chapter 22 in verse 21, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Being made of, of the woman by the power of the Holy Ghost, Christ had no original sin. He had no connection to Adam, the federal head of all mankind. His human nature was not corrupt nor polluted. There was no sin in him. And this is borne out by Christ's own testimony when he spoke of the devil's temptations in John chapter 14 and the verse 30. He said, The prince of this world cometh and have nothing in me. In other words, there was no sinful nature in Christ in his character to which the strong and real temptations could appeal. Christ had a sinless character. He was without spot within. And of course, this was manifested without. He had a sinless conduct as well. Not only a sinless character, but sinless conduct. He went through this whole life. And even though he walked in this world, and walked amongst men, he was never contaminated with sin. It tells us that he knew no sin. He did not sin. There's abundant evidence in, that, in the New Testament concerning that. An examination of his life as it's recorded in the gospel, it verifies this, and the testimony of his enemies confirms it. They found no fault in him. There was nothing worthy of condemnation. He is wholly harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. What an offering, perfect and acceptable to God. Then consider that it was a hole burnt off. And this speaks to us of Christ's entire consecration to God. He was com- completely devoted to the service and doing the will of God. As a boy in the temple, he said to Mary and Joseph, Wish ye, wish ye, Not that I must be about my father's business. He said to his disciples at the well of Samaria, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The vows of the covenant of redemption were upon him. And he in effect said to his father, I will pay my vows unto the Lord in the presence of his people. What a picture of devotion to God. Nothing was held back from or by him. He poured his soul out unto death with the skin that was flayed and given to the priests. Surely we behold there the righteousness of Christ, which is given unto his people who are made priests unto God. You could also think about the laying of the sacrifice on the altar. And the fire that burnt it, and air were brought to the altar of Calvary, and the fiery wrath of God that fell upon him. Christ is pictured in this burnt offering. But I must conclude this morning. We thought about, in our study of the burnt offering, the particulars, the procedure, the principles, the purpose, and the picture. With the appearing of the light of the world and the lens of the New Testament Scripture, the shadows of the Savior in the Old Testament are sharpened into focus. We have in the burnt offering a clear silhouette of the one who is the substance of of all these things. In Christ, we have a sacrifice of nobler worth by which you and I can draw an eye unto our God in an acceptable way and be accepted by Him and be delivered from the stroke of the penalty of sin that was our due. And as we draw nigh to Him in His way, we can look with confidence and assurance that he will draw nigh unto us. May the Lord bless his word to all our hearts for his own name's sake. And trust the Lord has blessed your soul in the study of the burnt offering. Let's just by in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before thee and we rejoice for Christ. We thank thee for who he is and what he has done. We thank thee, Lord, we have this freedom, this access unto thee. And we pray that we will come wholly devoted, consecrated to our God. That we would hold nothing back, for Christ held nothing back when he gave himself as a ransom for the many. Pray, O God, that we would live in the light and in the enjoyment of the atonement that has been made. That has covered our sin. That has released us and set us free from it. And we rejoice, O Heavenly Father, for this grace wherein we stand. And so, Lord, we look to Thee to bless the Word as it's gone out over the internet to the hearts of those who are gathered. Remember the Word, O God, that was given to our young people and children. We pray that You'll bless it abundantly. And Lord, You'll do good. for We ask all this in Christ's precious and His worthy name. Amen.